Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we provide the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today, we're going to talk about the movie Saving Mr. Banks, a movie about Walt Disney. No, wait, it's about P.L. Travers. No, wait, it's about both of them. It's two, two, two biopics in one. Really, Saving Mr. Banks is the story of the time when P.L. Travers was at the Disney Studios to work on making the movie of her creation, Mary Poppins. The movie is produced and released by the Walt Disney Corporation. I bet you can see where the conversation is headed. Saving Mr. Banks gets 7.5 out of 10 on the Internet Movie Database, a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 65% on Metacritic. The film was also named one of the top 10 films of 2013 by the American Film Institute, and Emma Thompson won the Empire Award and the National Board of Review Award for Best Actress. I am very happy to have as my guest for today's episode a longtime friend of mine, Miriam. She was really interested in talking about this film, and aside from being a warm and gracious person with a great laugh, trust me, you'll find out soon, she has brought an inquisitive nature and insight to the discussion, which I thoroughly enjoyed. How is Saving Mr. Banks as a movie? And how is it as a medium to document P.L. Travers both inside and outside of the Disney Studios? We will rate the movie as entertainment and as fact, and give a score at the end of the episode. There will be spoilers in the discussion. If you're ready, let's get started. If not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. You'll probably see I'm going to sit back, and that way you have body language to tell you whether or not I'm going to talk. So I'll usually hang back so my breathing isn't caught on the microphone. <laughs> yeah. <you're> talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a different podcast. <laughs> I'm sure those are out there. <laughs> so uh, uh, that way you know I'm listening to you. And then you also have a visual cue for when I'm about to say something so we aren't stepping all over each other. So I'm curious about, this is a film you wanted to do. What was your interest in doing this film? I think it's also just because with this biopic, I do love Disney movies. But this is one of the very few that I was like, I don't really like this one. And I would like to share my opinions on this one. Now, did you like it, not like it before or after you saw it? Oh, after I saw it. Really? Because I loved Mary Poppins. I was like, oh, I would love to see what this is about, about the artist who created it, how she collaborated with Walt Disney. But going in, what was your thought on it? I thought it was going to be magical about the collaboration, how the teamwork was going to happen to make such a beautiful movie. That's my impression because I thought it was going to be, you know, Disney, a Disney movie. With music and, you know, friendship. And you didn't see any friendship in that film? No, I did not. There was plenty of music. <laughs> there was plenty of music, but um, just the the interactions between Walt Disney and P.L. Travers, it didn't seem like they were getting along very well. 
No, no. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. So uh, before we go further, let's go ahead and talk about what the movie is, and then we'll talk about it as a movie. And then after we talk about it as a movie, we'll go ahead and talk about the true story behind this movie based on a true story. Oh, that sounds good. Saving Mr. Banks is a movie that is really two biopics in one. The first is a story of a two-week time period in which P.L. Travers was at the Disney Studios to develop the movie of her book series, Mary Poppins. The other biopic is about her life as a child in Australia, where she grew up with an alcoholic father, a mother who really wasn't present as a, as a mothering force, and a stern aunt who came to help the family, which we find is what the character of Mary Poppins is based on. The movie uses Travers' life story as flashbacks intermittently throughout the film. So I think what we should do is we should discuss the plot of the film as two separate things, because they do have the flashbacks appear, and they have it seem like her experience at the studio was cathartic for her, in getting over her issues with her father. Interesting. But I think that was what their intention was when they're making the movie. But I don't really think that's really what happened. You don't think that's what came out on film? I think it came out on film, but I don't think that's really what happened in real life. Okay. Okay. We will take a look at all of that. So when we take a look at her time at the studio, it was in 1961. And she was the writer of a successful series of children's books about the character of Mary Poppins. And she's in a position where her royalties have dried up. She's in need of money, and Walt Disney has been trying to buy the rights to her film character for 20 years. Disney has agreed to stipulations from Travers, no animation in the film, and he has given her script approval. The latter is something that he has never provided. Her approval is needed before he will sign the contract that allows Disney to make the movie. When she lands in Los Angeles, she is greeted by Ralph, a friendly limousine driver who is the father of a physically handicapped daughter. She slowly warms up to him over the course of the film. When she arrives at Disney Studios, she's greeted by screenwriter Don DeGrady, played by Bradley Whitford, who was in The West Wing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he was great in The West Wing as Josh. And did you see him in Get Out? Oh, yeah. He, he was, was good. He was great in Get Out. And then we also have songwriters Richard and Alan Sherman. Richard is played by Jason Schwartzman, who's been in a number of independent films. And one of my favorites, the Bill Murray Christmas special. Oh, I don't think I've seen that. You haven't seen the Bill? No. Oh, my God. Bill Murray Christmas special is so good. It's, it's the most real special on Christmas, I think. It's amazing. And then B.J. Novak plays Alan Sherman. And B.J. Novak is known for being part of The Office. Travers has several interactions with Walt Disney regarding translating her book into a movie. Travers is annoyed by the casual manner of Americans who don't call her Mrs. Travers, regardless of how many times she asks them to. They always call her Pam or Pamela. She's also irritated by Americans' informality and the food they serve, like jello cubes with toothpicks. <laughs> that doesn't sound very good, but it sounds appropriate with the times in the 60s. Uh I Have you ever looked at a cookbook from 1961? <laughs> it, it's amazing what people were putting into their bodies. It was really disgusting. Travers has very definitive ideas of how Mary Poppins should be portrayed. For instance, she's never just Mary, always Mary Poppins. And she's meticulous in her detail and how every aspect of the world she created should be portrayed on the big screen. 
Over the course of the discussions, Travers begins to drift further and further into her memories of an alcoholic father, as it becomes apparent that Mr. Banks, the father in Mary Poppins, is an idealized representation of her father. In an effort to win over Travers, Walt Disney arranges a trip for her to go to Disneyland with him as her personal escort. She begins to soften and is won over by the team she is working with when they present the song, Let's Go Fly a Kite. And she begins to collaborate with them. The collaboration comes to a crashing halt when she finds out that her stipulation of no animation is not going to be met with the Penguin sequence. She confronts Disney about it and unable to find resolution, she heads home to London. After Travers leaves the studio, Disney finds out that P.L. Travers is her pen name, and he boards the next flight to London. He arrives at Travers' home unexpectedly, and with the knowledge of her childhood, he shares with her his tough childhood with his father, and urges her not to let the past dictate the present. After Disney leaves, Travers signs the contract, granting the film rights. The movie shifts to three years later, 1964, and she has not been invited to attend the premiere. She shows up in Los Angeles unannounced, and she embarrasses Disney into giving her an invitation. She gets to the premiere, has a lack of enthusiasm about the film, and is escorted into the theater by Mickey Mouse and begins to warm to the film as she relates to the story of Mr. Banks' crisis and redemption to her father's. Miriam, why don't you go ahead and tell us what the other story was in the movie Saving Mr. Banks. So the other biopic in the movie is the story of Travers' childhood in Alora, Queensland, Australia. At the time, she was known as Helen Goff, or Ginty to her father, Travers Robert Goff, who was a bank manager and a chronic alcoholic. Her mother, Margaret Goff, attempted suicide and was rescued by Ginty. Following this, Margaret's stern sister, Ellie, appeared at their home, complete with a parrot head umbrella and a carpet bag to help the family through their tough times, alluding to the inspiration of Mary Poppins' character. Travers Goff dies from tuberculosis shortly after her arrival. Okay, so two stories going on in this one movie, and you, you said you were not fond of this movie after watching it. No, I was not. What what struck you? I think just looking at the Disney structure of how they do movies, typically in animation or the cartoons, it's there's usually a hero, someone that they want you to fall in love with, and then there's a villain, someone you don't want to root for. I kind of felt looking at this movie, they totally wanted to make Walt Disney look like the hero. He's going to save P.L. Travers. He's going to give her this moment of make this movie and it's going to make you feel better. And they portrayed her as very stern, angry, not willing to budge, not willing to be a team member in this collaboration. So I felt it just totally portrayed her in a negative light and Walt Disney as the savior when if we look back at it if if you know a little bit of information about Walt Disney he wasn't even the nicest guy but since it's a Disney movie of course they're going to portray him the best way oh I, I had some real concerns as soon as I saw the trailer for this movie because we have a movie by Disney Studios about Walt Disney yes okay so that was the first red flag for me portraying a woman who is, for all intents and purposes, even shown in the trailer as being difficult. And the thing that really, really 
bothered me about this movie going in and even more so afterwards is really what you have is you have someone who created a character and a world. And even though she is uh, looking to, you know, it wasn't her idea to sell it to Disney, but she's about to reach agreement. Even though she's going to sell it to Disney, she obviously wants to have some control over how this character is used, how this character is portrayed. And that's treated like a problem. And that's where I have an issue, because especially being portrayed by the Walt Disney Corporation, because Disney has been known to sue a daycare center because they painted Disney characters on the walls. So for a company that really wants to control their output, they're making a movie about how it was a therapeutic process for Travers to give up her control on her creation. And that just really just struck me the wrong way. Not to mention it was the magic of the Disney Studios experience that helped her come to terms with her father. I just really had some really big issues. I don't know if you noticed the use of Mickey Mouse in this film. Whenever she was having a hard time, she would hug the the Disney, the the uh, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, yeah. So so there were some moments which I thought, okay, you know, you know, Disney's kind of getting it like when she gets to the hotel room. And there's all the stuffed animals. And she grabs the Winnie the Pooh and she says, poor A.A. Milne. <laughs> yeah, I saw that part. And I thought, oh, okay, so Disney's at least understanding here. And then that was completely lost when she's starting to soften, when her flashbacks about her father are continuing. And she goes and she picks up the Mickey Mouse she had turned to the wall, the giant stuffed Mickey Mouse, and she brings it into bed. Which means she's literally in bed with the mascot for the Walt <laughs> Disney Corporation. And I thought, oh my God, this, okay, so, so there's that. Number two, there, there's three creepy uses of Mickey here. Number two is Mickey extending his arm at the premiere to escort her into the movie. Yeah, that was kind of creepy. And then the third is after Walt Disney leaves London, she's sitting at her kitchen table to sign the contract finally and the stuffed mickey is sitting across from her in the chair as she's signing the contract so to me it was just completely creepy use of mickey throughout the film yeah and the third part i definitely felt was unnecessary like she's really gonna look towards the stuffed mickey for guidance before she signs well let's let's look at logistics on this number one she leaves angry at disney and the disney corporation she, she's upset about the animation sequence. She didn't have the Mickey with her on the plane. Disney didn't have it at his door. How did the Mickey get in her kitchen? <laughs> I really doubt she wanted a souvenir of the mascot of the Walt Disney Company to remember her two-week period at the studios. And somehow, it appears there in the kitchen. And do you want to get into the part yet about did that even really happen about the flight with him going over there with the script or for the, the signing? You know what? I, I think we've given our opinions of this film, but first, okay, we'll get into that. But on a scale of five stars, how would you rate this as a movie? Taking into account everything we've discussed, how would you rate it as a piece of entertainment? And the reason I ask that is because, and I've had these conversations with people as well. It's just a movie. But 
I think it's hard when you say it's just a movie, but when the information that you have in the background about it and how much of it was embellished, it's kind of hard to separate the two. Yeah, and, and like you said, Disney Company was definitely putting Walt out there in a certain way. They they definitely had a line to walk because if you make him too good, then it's an infomercial. And, and you definitely don't want to get to the point of showing faults for Disney. So it, it, they're definitely being purposeful about how he's portrayed. So it's never just a movie. There's always purpose to what's happening. And I'm sure they want to keep his image clean as possible mm-hmm. as the godfather of Disney. Yeah, which is interesting. And we'll get to the rating in just a second, but I wanted to slip this in because you mentioned keeping his image clean. There was a contrast that happened regarding smoking because Walt was a three-pack-a-day smoker. And Tom Hanks was actually pushing to him, for him to be allowed to smoke on screen. But Disney 86 smoking in the 80s. They said, we're not going to show smoking anymore. And it's gotten to the point if Walt lit up a cigarette it would be an R-rated movie, which Disney didn't want to put out either. But there's some allusions to Walt smoking. Uh, hearing him cough down the hallway was one of them, because in real life, uh, whenever they heard Walt coming, that, that was the tell. He'd always be coughing down the hallway, so they knew he was coming. But they do have the one moment where Hanks is stubbing out a cigarette behind something else. And he says, oh, don't let anyone see me doing this. I don't want to be a bad example. Well, that's the whole reason why Disney got rid of smoking in their films is because they didn't want there to be a bad example. And Disney took it to the point where they airbrushed photos of Walt Disney to take the cigarette out. So if you go to Disneyland, uh, Disneyland and Disney staff are known for doing what's called the two finger point, where they point with two fingers. And the reason that's given is to do the American gesture of pointing with one finger is deemed rude in certain societies. And and that's true. But the other reason is once they airbrush the cigarettes out of the photos with Disney, you suddenly have a lot of pictures of him pointing at storyboards using two fingers (laughs) where a cigarette used to be. (laughs) And there's a real quick moment on the carousel. Where Walt Dis- where Tom Hanks is Walt Disney, he's riding the carousel and he goes and he points with two fingers. Well, that's that's what the two finger point is. Oh, I didn't know that. This is a good tidbit for me to know. Yeah. So uh so yes, they they did want to have a clean image for Walt. I doubt he was as nice to Travers as portrayed in the movie. And I know he certainly wasn't. We'll talk about that a little bit. But as a piece of entertainment or just a movie, like people like to say, what would you rate it on a scale of five stars? I would give it two stars. And that's being very nice. I'll go with you on the two stars. I I thought the acting was great. Paul Giamatti's character, even though he never existed in real life, uh, was well done. Uh, I thought Emma Thompson did a great job as P.L. Travers. And the more research I did, the more I think she represented her fairly. So, yeah, I'll go with two stars because there's a whole lot of other creepy stuff happening in there that is propaganda. But let's go ahead and take a look at what really happened. And we're going to start with the central conceit of the movie in that a two-week time period occurred at the studios for P.L. Travers to come and work. Because in the agreement she, well, she didn't have an agreement yet. And that's the central conceit of the movie is that 
the Sherman brothers and Degrassi had to cater to her demands in a certain way in order for her to sign the agreement. And this is where I found a lot of contradictory information taking place. Well, well, not contradictory. Most sources are correct in saying the agreement was already signed in London before she even came to the studios. So as I'm doing the research, I'm finding that on the recordings that were made, she said no a lot. But there were other times when she liked ideas and they would work together and they would build on things to create different aspects for the movie. And I started to think, well, if the agreement was already signed and she was there because she had script approval in the agreement, plus the agreement gave her 5% of the gross earnings, she really has little incentive to sabotage the film, as was shown in the movie. So what were they doing then? They were collaborating. It was the push and pull of creating art, which if an agreement was in place, then I think it's unfair how they portrayed her that she was here to just shoot the whole thing down. And that was the whole thing, too, of this really didn't happen. The audience is led to believe that there wasn't a signed agreement before she came out there. So they really needed, like you said, to cater to her. But it didn't really happen. They already had this agreement. It's just them working on this film together and putting their creative juices together. But I think, like you said, they did it to purposefully make her look like she was very difficult to work with. And here comes Walt a few times and says things, well, how can I make you happy? Mm-hmm. And okay, so it just makes her look like she does not want to be part of something creative and work together mm-hmm. that he's going to be the one to ultimately fix and make it work. And let's also add what really happened is Walt wasn't there at all. That's true, too. In fact, uh, I have a quote from Alan Sherman. He came up to the Shermans and Degrassi and he said, P.L. Travers arrives today. I will leave today and be in my house in Palm Springs. She will be here for two weeks. I will return when she leaves. Bye, boys. And he left them with P.L. Travers. So that's that's an additional element that if there is an agreement in place that was signed and Walt's not there, he doesn't have to put on the sale at all. He doesn't have to sell her on it. But I also think the reason that they they did that where there's no contract sign that, oh, Walt Disney was there is because they wanted to make the movie about how how she's working with Walt and Walt is going to make this movie happen. Mm -hmm. If you don't add him into those parts, then you don't really have the movie. So this is the path I was on, which is in the end, they were just collaborating. Just before we came to record, uh, I was searching online and I found a Disney produced making of Mary Poppins. And what came out in that is the Sherman brothers were talking about working with P.L. Travers. They were under the understanding that Walt had an agreement, which is why she was there. And what wound up happening is Disney only had an option. And this is the finer point that isn't reported in a lot of sources. And we'll get to a couple other finer points later on regarding P.L. Travers' life. But if he only had an option, he didn't have a full agreement yet, which means he had all this investment taking place on the hope she would sign an agreement which she had up until 30 days after the script approval meeting to sign that agreement. 
So now we veer back into the territory that the movie shows. Does that mean the movie is a little more accurate now? Because Disney really left, but he left the Shermans and DeGrati to work with her and hopefully sell her into signing the agreement. So do we move more into a little more element of truth in the film knowing that? I don't think so. You don't think so? Mm -mm. Because uh, according to the Sherman brothers, she left the studio after the two-week period, had 30 days to sign, and signed the contract on the 30th day. So do you think that's why they did the whole London and he flew out there to help her sign it in the movie? I do, because there's even an element of truth to that. Uh, I mean, he didn't hop on the next plane. And also, I wonder, how could she know so much about her personal life if he caught the next plane, flew over? It's not like he had Wi-Fi on the flight (laughs) in 61. He wasn't able to research her life, so how did he know so much about her childhood when he got there? But Walt did actually meet her in her home a couple times in London, and it was when he sold her on the option, he was in London to take a look at another production he had in the works. And he had been working for so long to try to get P.L. Travers on board that he decided, well, maybe I'll see if I can meet her in person. And he did. And P.L. Travers describes him as an uncle who's holding a shiny watch and swinging it back and (laughs) forth that you kind of fall under his spell. And that's when she agreed to the option is when Walt came and visited her in person. So it didn't happen the way it is in the movie, but... The, the actual moves toward an agreement happened when they had a face-to-face conversation at her home. Oh, well, that's good to know. Now, when it comes to the two-week period, I also find a lot of contradictory information coming from particularly Richard Sherman. He is quoted as saying P.L. Travers was a bitch. He's quoted as saying that she didn't care about our feelings. He, he does a lot of complaining about her. But he also said about her, and this is an interesting quote, there was a, a special that was made for British television about the life of P.L. Travers. And Richard Sherman says in that special, she was eccentric. She was not your average person. I think she had a genius for writing and imagination, incredible imagination. And along with that is the price you pay. Sometimes you are not exactly with both feet firmly on the ground. I also think because it was the 1960s, she was a woman who was an artist and had this creation. There's this double standard. Or even today, with a strong woman with strong opinions, she's a bitch. This is not something that she wants to work with us on. This is her thing. I agree. The movie came off as very misogynistic in that aspect. And I became curious because, well, I think there's a couple elements here in play. Number one, what was the role of women in the Walt Disney creative team at that time? I don't think there was a role of the women. I don't think he even allowed women animators at the time. And I became curious about that. So I did some research. Generally, the job of women at the Disney studio were ink and paint to color the cells with paint because back in the day everything was hand drawn before computer and animation. However, the first female animator at the Disney Studios was there in 1934 and worked on a goofy cartoon. And I don't even think she was the first 
female animator, but she was the first female animator who was credited with doing the work. That was 1934. There were about five or six other women who came in before 1961, but they had to deal with incredible harassment and misogyny from what is essentially a boys' club. So when you look at the creative process as shown in the movie, it most definitely was a boys' club. So I think you have a culture clash taking place there. Um, I also think the other element, and a lot of sources make a lot of hay out of P.L. Travers being given script approval, that this is unprecedented, that the Disney Studios had never done this before. But I think we need to take a step back and look at what were the original sources for most of the Disney films. It was fairy tales, and it was stories that were in the public domain. By the time they made Peter Pan, J.M. Barry was dead. <laughs> so no one they needed to talk to about that. By the time they made Winnie the Pooh, A.A. Milne was at the last years of his life. Everything else, Adventures of Huck Finn was public domain, Cinderella was public domain, Sleeping Beauty public domain. Even today, Frozen is public domain. It's based on a story by Hans Christian Andersen. So they set themselves up where they really don't have to work with an author who has created a world and has a vision. So you have P.L. Travers come in and say, no, that's not the way I want it. And on top of being their one of the few times by then they had worked with an author, she's also a woman in the creative process. But then again, some of those qualities that she has, Walt Disney was also known to have. And then that is portrayed in a positive way, whereas, as you mentioned, she's a woman, so that's a negative. I'm so glad you brought that up because that is so true. They're looking at Sleeping Beauty's castle. And what does he say about the gold? Do you remember? He mentions that's real 24 karat gold and that his brother Roy thought it was too expensive. So I waited till he was out of town. But aren't they just cut from the same cloth then, like you said? Exactly. And it's well known that Roy Disney controlled the finances and was frequently frustrated with Disney's vision of the creative process because Disney would just have an attitude of the financials be damned. We're going to do what we want on this or I'm going to do what I want on this. And then he's faced with another creator who is doing the same thing and taking the same approach. But that's that's my question. Is it because he felt like, oh, I'm Walt Disney. I'm giving you this opportunity. I'm giving you money for this. We should do it my way. Or is it because I'm Walt Disney. I'm a man. This is how I do things. You're a woman. I really don't have to put up with so much. So that's what I was trying to figure out. Given the times, I'm sure there was misogyny mixed in. But you're also talking about translating something into a different medium. Uh, he's taking her books, which really didn't have a uh, a flow-through storyline. They were a number of different situations that she wrote about. And that's one thing the Sherman brothers talk about developing is, in the books, there's not a reason for Mary Poppins to be with the family. She just appears. And that's why they created for the movie that the father is involved with banking, the mother is involved with the suffragettes, and they aren't paying attention to the children. They felt they had to provide a reason for Mary Poppins to be there and give her a purpose, which is to show the parents what's really important. 
And what's really important is their children and spending time with them. So I think that just comes with translating a work to a different medium because they're also taking the books and changing it into a musical as well. But but yeah, I'm sure misogyny made it a more difficult process as well. Or also the part in the movie where she's having a very hard time with the way the script is going and Walt Disney saying, I'm going to take you to Disneyland. It's going to solve all the problems. I'm going to whisk you away. There was a plan in real life for him to do that. But remember, he's in Palm Springs. So he called at the last minute and said he had a cold and he wouldn't be able to make it. And he had a, an, an assistant producer actually take Travers to Disneyland. She had use of Disney's personal car at the park. They had lunch up in the firehouse. And she hated every minute of it. She didn't. <laughs> she was not wooed by it in any sort of way. <laughs> but aside from her experience in working with the creation aspect, what the movie shows is that this was entirely a cathartic experience for her in that she was able to come to terms with her life and her childhood. Well, what I liked about this part about the catharsis in the movie is when they really tried to portray Walt Disney as a human with flaws and who had a past. Mm -hmm. When he flew out to London and he sat with her and he told her a little bit about his life and growing up and his father. That was the part where I thought, oh, wow, they're really going to show Walt as a human. And I really liked that part. Mm -hmm. But I want to move on real quick to an aside that's in the movie, because there's a point where uh, Walt Disney is just kind of stuck, not knowing which way to go with uh, P.L. Travers in order to resolve all of this. And he's sitting with Richard Sherman and he makes a comment that he can understand where she's coming from. Because he almost had Mickey Mouse taken away from him. And I became by a man named Pat Powers. And I became curious about it. So I did some research. And before we get into this, I want to give a shout out to someone named Kyle, who's running a really interesting podcast out there called the Uncle Walt Podcast. And what he's doing is he's presenting a chronological history of Walt Disney in podcast form which means he's starting at a specific time and date and he's going to be working on this and bringing it up into the present with each episode. Oh, wow. And he, he's doing some really good work on it. So a lot of the information we're going to talk about Pat Powers came from what he presented. Pat Powers, who's mentioned by Disney in the movie, was a movie producer and he was a con man. He was one of the original people who created Universal Studios. Which, interestingly enough, we're going to find in a moment, it wasn't Pat Powers who tried to take Mickey away, but the precursor to Mickey was Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, which Walt Disney created with his animation partner, Ub Iwerks. UB for the first name, and Iwerks, I-W-E-R-K-S for the last name. It was actually Universal Pictures who took over Oswald the Lucky Rabbit from Walt Disney, which is what led him to create Mickey Mouse. And also cemented in him, he really had to have control over everything he did, which we see in his studios. But Pat Powers was a producer and a con man, and he quote-unquote developed the Pat Powers Cinephone system. 
Now, this was in 1926, 1927, as Disney was getting ready to launch Steamboat Willie, which wasn't the first sound cartoon, but it was the first moving image with synchronized sound. And the Pat Power Cinephone system, the reason I said quote unquote on development, is because he hired an engineer away from what was called the DeForest Cinephone Company to create a copy of their system. And then he rebranded it with his own name. And it's this Pat Powers Cinephone system that he signed Disney to a contract for use of that system. Now, the problem is sound pictures were not a proven entity yet. This is coming out of the times of silent films. Oh. And there was no film company who was really eager to distribute sound images because they weren't proven. So guess who stepped up to distribute Disney's early films? Pat Powers. Oh. Gave Disney a contract, which Disney didn't read because he liked Pat Powers right away. He described him as a good-natured cuss who was always in a good mood and a man with oodles of jack you couldn't help but like. (laughs) So Walt signed a contract with Powers, which included an upfront deposit of $500, $50 for Powers to be the sound engineer, and then one cent per foot of film. Studio has been booked. They have the orchestra ready to come. And a few days before the recording session, Powers changed the terms of the contract to a $50 fee, which went away for him being sound engineer. And he changed the one cent per foot of film to $1 per foot of film. And Disney didn't know that he changed it. Uh, Disney knew he changed it, but because he already had everything lined up and money had been put out for this, he really didn't have much of a choice. Oh, okay. But to go along with it. Later on, when Disney wanted to renegotiate the terms of the distribution contract, well, which I mentioned he didn't read before signing, Powers offered Disney's partner of iWorks his own studio to compete with Disney. And iWorks wound up leaving Disney and the contract terms stayed in place. Oh, no. So Powers was definitely doing some hinky stuff, but it didn't involve taking Mickey away. It just involved taking as much money from Disney as Powers possibly could. So was that part in the movie just an elaboration then? Because he wasn't going to take Mickey away? Yeah, and I don't know why they used Mickey as the example. uh, Because it was really Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, which was taken away from Disney. But the only thing I can think of for taking that license is if you say Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, then people have to understand that Disney first created Oswald and this is what happened with the Universal. So by substituting Oswald for Mickey, people already have an understanding of Mickey as a character. Oh, okay. So I can understand why they took the license, but it wasn't Pat Powers that was trying to take Mickey away. In fact, I couldn't find anything on people trying to take Mickey away because Disney had already, you know, taking control of as much as he could after his experience with Universal. Yeah, so maybe just another elaboration that was meant for the movie. Yeah, yeah, I think so. To try to get across that Disney understood where Travers was coming from. Although, um, I, I don't know how much he did in real life. I haven't been able to find much on how much he re- related to Travers. Because if he's after someone for 20 years to try to get their property to use... 
uh, I don't know if he's really relating to her point of view. No, he was probably just using that as a way to connect and to take from her. Let's go ahead and talk about the premiere. Because we talked about it a little bit in talking about the movie. But what we have is we have Travers was not given an invitation to the premiere. But she was given one because she showed up at Walt's office unannounced. She's escorted into the premiere by Mickey Mouse and is not enthusiastic about the film. And she is shown crying with catharsis as she watches Mr. Banks' Crisis and Redemption. And she's able to let go of her past. Now, we already talked about our impressions of this with the movie, but uh, what happened in real life is Disney did not provide an invitation for her, and it was for exactly the reason he says in the film. They were really concerned with Travers creating a scene at the movie. And I was able to find some actual interview footage of Travers at the premiere. And I'll have that available on the website, Biopics Mostly Suck, <laughs> slash Saving Mr. Banks. And we'll have all of the sources that we used for creating this episode there. But we'll also have the video of Travers. And Travers is asked about the film and what she's looking forward to. And her response is very diplomatic. She says, I'm very much looking forward to what Mr. Disney has created for us. Because she doesn't want to portray him in a bad light and say bad things about him to the to the media. No. She doesn't want to lose that 5%. No, no. In fact, she was became a multimillionaire from this film. But the way she actually received an invitation, and I found this in multiple sources, is that she embarrassed a Disney executive into giving her an invitation. Now, none of those sources say what she did to embarrass the executive, just that she embarrassed him. So we have no idea what she did. But at the premiere, she was crying, but not for the reasons that are shown in the film. The film tries to make light of it. And you can't really hear it said in the film. I had to go to closed caption in order to find out. But she's sitting there and she's crying and tears are streaming down her face. And Disney leans forward and says... It's okay, Pamela. It's okay. And her response is, no, I just can't abide by the animation. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is probably the most true moment in the entire film because that's why she was crying. She was not happy at all with the film. And she had some idea that because she had script approval, she had more control over the film than she did. And after the premiere at a party that was held, she approached Disney and very loudly said, okay, when do we get to work on this? The first thing that has to go is the animation scene. And Disney just turned and looked at her and said, Pamela, that ship has sailed. And he walked past her. It's done. She went home. She was, as one source I found said, she was the guest at a party that no one wanted her to be at. <laughs> ouch. Yeah, ouch. And she went home and was very unhappy with her experience with Disney Studios and with Disney. That when the option in the early two, in the 1990s came up to develop a play based on Mary Poppins, she agreed on the stipulation that no one who was involved with the production of the movie be involved. And there could be no Americans involved. But that was her way of also getting that control she didn't have in the 60s for Mary Poppins. Yes, which 
it's ironic that there is a Mary Poppins stage presentation out there and that the company that she had reached the agreement with is in partnership with Disney. So the the Sherman Brothers songs are part of the movie, but what's interesting is they also blow it out to other elements of the book that didn't make it into the Mary Poppins film to more represent Travers' view. Were there any topics in particular you were interested in? I, I think it's more when we get to the part about her childhood and that part of the biopic, because I still have questions about that too. Is it really as accurate as it was when she was growing up? Do we have that information? Oh, we do have that information. Oh, good. And we are at that point for talking about it. Before we do, I want to frame this with an article I found on Vulture.com, written by Margaret Lyons, where she writes about the movie Saving Mr. Banks. And she, the, the way she put it, I felt really encapsulated my feelings about the movie. And here is what Margaret Lyons has to say. She says, Saving Mr. Banks presents giving up one's artistic integrity as a therapeutic process. Isn't it ultimately in P.L. Travers' best interest to allow her characters to become unrecognizable in the hands of a giant corporation? I mean, sure, it's sort of noble that she wants to retain creative control of her own actual ideas, but weigh that against the catchiness of Let's Go Fly a Kite? Kite wins every time. (laughs) And that's where the discomforting feeling of having consumed propaganda comes from. Saving Mr. Banks is produced by Disney and stars Tom freaking Hanks as Walt himself. (laughs) Of course, Disney the man and the corporation will prevail. But it could have been a fairer fight in the movie. And what was presented as a joyless, loveless, pendant finally giving herself over to the delight and imagination of the wonderful world of Disney could just as easily have been presented as a creative, passionate person with dignity and real emotions getting steamrolled by one of the most powerful companies in the world. Chim Chim Chiru. But if it was portrayed in a more accurate light, no one's going to want to watch that movie. I think that really encapsulates my feeling about the film is that she was reduced to one note in the movie. And the more research I did on her, the more fascinating she became. She is a complicated person of contrast who didn't always give the true story about herself. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at what we can find out about her apart from her disnified life. And let's go ahead and start out with this quote that came from P.L. Travers, because this is going to frame a little bit of how we talk about her. She said, the truth is one thing. Facts are another. Just because it is fiction does not make it a lie. How do you think that applies to a biopic? (laughs) Uh, They have a lot of freedom in terms of how accurate they want to make it or not. What I found is that P.L. Travers took a lot of license in presenting her own life. So let's go ahead and take a look at it. A lot of what we see in the movie is her early life. She was born in 1899 in Queensland, Australia, as Helen Linden Golf. The family called her Linden. Her father called her Ginty. Her father was Travers Golf, who was a bank manager, as shown in the movie, and an alcoholic. Now, one thing the movie shows, which they really don't blow out for full understanding, 
is you see the family leave a very well-appointed house in a very well-appointed neighborhood, and they have servants there. It was because of his alcoholism that they had to leave that house, and that's why they wound up in Alora, Queensland, uh, down at the end of the line of the railroad, and they went from having many servants to having just one servant at that house. There was no servant in the movie. No. But the servant was named Kate, and she had a parrot head umbrella. Oh. And according to Valerie Lawson, who wrote the biography of P.L. Travers, the real Mary Poppins, the maid would leave without notice and return without notice. Oh, I thought it was the aunt that came in. Aha. It seems that there was an amalgamation of women that Travers used. So just much like the winds that take Mary Poppins and cause her to leave, Kate, the servant, would show up without notice and leave without notice. Sound familiar? Very much so. Travers died when... I'm sorry. Travers, when we say Travers right now, we're referring to the father. Mm -hmm. Because Travers is his first name. So Mr. Goff uh, died when Travers was seven. We'll say Helen Goff for now, just to keep things straight. So Helen Goff, soon to be Travers. Her mother, Margaret Agnes Moorhead, she was actually the sister of the Premier of Australia. And her family was well-connected because her family were in the sugar business in Australia. So they had quite a bit of money. And following P.L. Travers' father's death, the family moved to New South Wales. They were supported by a great aunt named Helen Moorhead, who is also credited with being the inspiration for Mary Poppins. She would frequently say spit spot. <laughs> and she also had a carpet bag. Oh. oh. So we have a carpet bag. We have a parrot head umbrella. We have a stern aunt creating order with the children. We have in Kate the Servant, someone who leaves and comes without notice. And during this time, Travers' mother woke to tell Travers that she was going to kill herself. Now, what we see in the movie is we see her mother walking out and Travers running after her and stopping her. What happened in real life is Travers' mother announced to Travers that she was going to kill herself. And what Travers did in response was she gathered the other children in the household and sat them by the fire and started to tell them fantasy stories to distract them from what was taking place. The mother, in the end, did not follow through. We don't know what stopped her, but it certainly wasn't young Travers. And she returned home, but she was never quite the same after that. So, but in real life, that happened after the father died? Happened after the father died. As a teenager, Helen Goff was an avid reader. And by the time she became a teenager, her poems were being published in Australian periodicals. She developed a reputation as a dancer and a Shakespearean actress. And this is when she took the stage name of Pamela Lyndon Travers, P.L. Travers. Pamela being just a common name at the time, Lyndon being her real middle name, and Travers being her father's first name. Now, as I mentioned... The mother's family were in the sugar business. They were well-connected, and they really didn't approve of the path that now Pamela Lyndon Travers was taking. 
So P.L. Travers' response was to leave for England, where she decided to reinvent herself. She sought a literary life. She had been in correspondence with George William Russell, who published poems in The Irish Statesman. And this is her beginning of always looking for a father figure. She has even said that she was always looking for a father figure. Her father informs a lot of what she wound up doing. With George William Russell, he became a lifelong supporter of Travers. Russell introduced her to William Butler Yeats, the famous poet, who introduced her to the mystic G.I. Gurdjieff. And at the beginning of the movie, as the camera's panning around her desk, you can see a book by G.I. Gurdjieff sitting there on the desk. Mm. Now, Travers developed Mary Poppins in 1934. She says when she was recovering from a lung ailment and that Mary Poppins just appeared to her. Other stories say that she was making up stories for two visiting children while she had a lung ailment. And there is a reality that the first Mary Poppins story was published in a periodical two years before she had the lung ailment. So the truth from Travers isn't always the truth. She said Poppins came to her fully formed, through the window. Travers never married, but she had an affair with a married man who was 20 years her senior. He introduced her to a woman who she lived with for 10 years. There's conflicting information that she was openly bisexual, although there isn't real confirmation for that, except she lived with a woman for 10 years. And I think it's interesting to note something that was alluded to in the movie, but wasn't true, is it said that she's not a mother. In real life, Travers was a mother. But there's this line in the movie that's interesting, because in an exchange with the Sherman brothers, she says, being a mother is a job. It's a difficult job, one that not everyone is up to and one that many people should not have taken on in the first place. You know, when she brought up that line about it's not a job for everyone, I thought she was alluding back to her mother just because the, the mom was having difficulties. Obviously, she had some sort of depression and that's why she tried to, to end her life. I thought she was talking about her upbringing with her mother. I think it could apply to that as well, but I think it could also very well apply to P.L. Travers herself, because Travers got some information about an Irish family who was destitute and who had four children, and the mother had just given birth to twins. The father and mother were not able and, by some accounts, were not interested in caring for the child, and their grandfather, Joseph Hone, entertained P.L. Travers at his home, and as she was looking at the infant twins, he said to her, take two, they're small. Well, Travers left, she consulted with her astrologer, and her astrologer told her to only take the oldest twin. Oh no, yeah, she only took one. Had you heard of this before? Yes. Oh, where did you hear about it? I actually read it in one of the articles. About, about, yeah, that there were twins and that she, she only took the oldest one and that later on that the two boys actually met in a pub and they're twins. Uh And then that's when it it all came out where she told her son that she was the biological mother and come to find out, he finds out when he was like 17 that he was actually adopted and that she didn't adopt his twin brother. 
Yes, and what she did is she told him that her his father died in the tropics, which was really her father who died in the tropics of Australia. Oh. What we have here is Camillus is the infant that she took, and Anthony is the one that she left behind. What is commonly reported is what you said, that they bumped into each other in a pub, but I was able to find the true story from as close to a source as you can. This is an article in the Irish Examiner, and it was written by Joseph Hone, who is the eldest brother of these twins. Oh. And this article came out around the time of saving Mr. Banks, because he's talking about the P.L. Travers that he knew. There's a lot of great information in here. What happened was Anthony, uh, the youngest twin, had found out that he has a twin and sought him out and wound up on P.L. Travers' doorstep. And it was after the brothers met that they then went to a pub to celebrate that they had found each other. I think it makes a more interesting story that someone who looks just like you is in a (laughs) pub and you bump into him. But the truth is, Anthony sought out Camillus after he had heard that he existed. And then after that, Camillus's relationship with his mother, P.L. Travers, did it just deteriorate? Well, it didn't quite deteriorate because, um, you know, of course, is the question, if P.L. Travers wanted such control over her work, why did she ultimately sign? And in a in that special I had mentioned that aired in England, Camillus is interviewed. Her son is interviewed, and he says she had said that she signed for the benefit of others, meaning him. So that was her impetus for finally signing with Walt Disney, was she knew it would make her a lot of money that she could leave to her son. Oh, okay. Which means I imagine she must have had some type of guilt because she wasn't really much of a mother. She wasn't a mothering figure. She she sent him off to boarding school. For a large portion of the time. And in fact, when she was in uh, at the Disney Studios in the time period portrayed by the movie, Camillus was in prison for drunk driving during that time. Oh, wow. And I was also wondering why they portrayed her as not having children. Because they did ask her, do you have children? And she's like, well, no. And it's in the yeah. movie. So I'm wondering if they just wanted to leave her personal life out of the movie. I think sometimes those choices are made because of the backstory you have to put in there. Because the time period of her personal life they were covering was until she was seven. They didn't cover anything she did in England other than later in life in 1961. So to have to explain that the whole twin thing and what we were just talking about, I think would just take too much time away from the narrative. That's true. Both brothers did not meet a great end. They obviously had a rough time with the discovery of what Travers did. They both became alcoholic. They both largely died from the effects of alcoholism. And this oldest brother says he doesn't completely blame Pamela Travers for their fate. He says there is another argument in Pamela's favor and of her adoption of Camillus. However, he was far better off with her than he would have been with our real feckless, inebriated parents in London, or with our mother's impoverished family in Ireland. With her patience, love, and money, she gave Camillus many practical and happy things that he would never otherwise have had, things that he made little use of in his later wild and self-destructive life. 
Many people get over being lied to by their family, and Camillus should have done this. He destroyed himself much more than Pamela might have done. But I think that goes back to the whole nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. Here she is. is She may be like a Walt Disney movie. I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you a better life. I'm going to give you the opportunities. But looking at where his biology is and his genetics, Mm -hmm. he was bound also to maybe he has the family history of alcoholism in his genes. Those are certain things that even as a parent, she probably couldn't prevent those. Yeah. And honestly... I would love to see a biopic just on P.L. Travers. Oh, I would too. I mean, she was she was a woman who knew what she wanted. She was definitely given to flights of fancy, such as when she describes how Mary Poppins came to her, which is completely false. But she also thinks just because it's not true, it doesn't make it a lie. She was a complicated person who was very sure of what she wanted. But at the same time, She didn't make the best decisions. She was very into mysticism and astrology and bought into that completely to the degree that it informed which child she selected. And I just think she's an interesting study of contrasts. And then I would also just like to see the backstory, if they do do that biography, of what it was like for her as a woman, probably in the 1930s, starting out as a journalist, Mm -hmm. getting her poems published. What was it like for her to break through when it's, like you said, it's a boys club? But then it just, with history, it's what she's known for is Mary Poppins. And and that's one reason I wanted to talk about her a little more today is to flesh her out a little beyond just being a stern woman who seems to be unhappy and says no a lot. (laughs) She had a lot more going for her. She did. All right. Well, thank you very much for doing this, Mary. It was fun. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now it's time for us to fact check ourselves. We come to these conversations prepared, but sometimes, just sometimes, we find ourselves going in a direction we weren't prepared for, and we mention some bad information, or we just completely make stuff up. For instance, I mentioned an animator at the Disney Studios who was the first female animator to receive credit for her work. Ironically, I continued the discussion without even mentioning her name. Retta Scott joined the Disney Studios in 1938, and she was assigned to the story department. When Disney saw her drawings, she was assigned to animate scenes of hunting dogs chasing Feline in the film Bambi, where she received a screen credit as an animator, the first woman to do so. After Bambi, Scott worked on Fantasia, Dumbo, and The Wind in the Willows. You can see her in the film The Reluctant Dragon during the tour of the life-drawing classroom. She's the person who draws a picture of the host Robert Benchley as an elephant and hands it to him. Well, that wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere. You can find all of the sources we use to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash savingmrbanks. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. For this episode, I have a couple clips. Uh, One clip 
is Emma Thompson talking about how she prepared for the role of P.L. Travers, and she brings some particular insight about P.L. Travers as a person. The other clip is P.L. Travers herself. I have footage of her talking at the premiere of Mary Poppins, where she has some kind words in the expectation of what Mr. Disney has in store for us. How are we doing with this project? Send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode, and we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone. This one's for Bob. Bob.